Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. Our show is about to begin. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins. I am traveling this week, but wanted to give you a quick intro about author Doug Adams. Doug Adams is the author of the incredible book, The Music of the Lord of the Rings, and I am thrilled that he agreed to this interview for The Soundtrack Show. So I'm very, very happy to have Doug Adams here on the show. Doug, welcome to The Soundtrack Show. Thank you so much. Great to be here. So obviously, as you know, I've been doing episodes on the music of The Lord of the Rings. And Doug, you have written this amazing book, The Music of The Lord of the Rings Films. It's been an invaluable resource to me when studying this music. I don't think there's anyone, you know, maybe maybe next to Howard Shore himself that knows this music better than you do. How did you first come into contact with Howard Shore? How did this journey of chronicling his music for Lord of the Rings begin? Uh, I think I first met Howard as an interviewer for Film Score Monthly, the magazine, kind of uh, not the very first of its kind, but very early on as uh, as film music was sort of making its way little by little more into the mainstream. I know it's still sort of its own niche thing, but... Um, I was a uh, I was a graduate student at the time, and I was writing for Film Score Monthly, and I was kind of the one uh, musician on staff. You know, all my my training, despite the fact that I'm doing this as a writer, my training is all in music. That's really how I make my living. Um, so I would always get the job of doing all the composer interviews. You know, so and so has a score to plug, or wants to talk about they tried this new approach or recording technique or what have you. And I would uh, very happily get a chance to sit down with a lot of these people that were my idols. And Howard Shore, of course, was was uh, very much on that list. I was hugely aware of his work for all the Cronenberg films and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so I had interviewed him a few times for Film Scrum Monthly, and we always got along, uh, you know, really, really well. I, I would always joke that his uh, his Canadian temperament and my Midwestern temperament were sort of on the same page, so we would always <laughs> have plenty to talk about. Um, the, the constant, uh, <laughs> sometimes unwarranted optimism of things. Um <laughs> 
But we would, uh, you know, we'd do our interviews and, and plug projects and what have you. And then we'd always sort of sit on the phone for a good extra half an hour, 45 minutes. And, hey, did you see this? Did you hear this? Did you try this? Did you, <clears throat> you know, just catching up on the world of the arts and all that. Um, and I, like I said, I was a grad student at the time and living with my parents. So he'd, he'd call to do an interview and get my dad on the phone and things like that and would be, you know, pestering me about my grades. And oh, that's great. <laughs> all that, yeah. That's <laughs> kind of great. Like, he, was, he was crazy Uncle Howard for a little while there, um, which was absolutely amazing. Uh, and I think we were in, uh, if I remember the timeline correctly, it was about May of 2000, uh, May of 2001. Um, he had a, a score coming out to a film called The Score. It was a, a heist picture directed right. by Frank Oz. Um, that's the, that's and, the one with um, uh, that's the one with uh, oh my gosh, why, how am I forgetting his name? The late uh, amazing Marlon actor. Brando, is Brando. In it. Yeah, yeah, that was a famous uh, De Niro one. Nero is in it. Edward Norton. It was quite a right, cast. Right, but I was thinking um, of Marlon Brando, and that was the one where yeah, Marlon Brando and Frank Oz didn't quite see eye to eye. If I remember, that. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> Anyway. Yeah, well, hey, they they made it work. It was okay. Um, but anyway, so we did this this interview, and I, I loved the score happily. And at the end of the interview, we got to that session where we would just sit and chat. And he said to me, you know, I'm I'm doing this Lord of the Rings thing. And I was very well aware, but I was still trying to keep things professional and not, you know, jump a project ahead and go, tell me about Lord of the Rings. Right. Um, and I so I admitted, yeah, I know. I'm trying not to bring it up so I can seem cool. <laughs> and he, <laughs> which I'm sure didn't work at all. Uh, but he said to me, you know, um, there's a ton of, of documentary work going on in New Zealand right now. There's people, you know, chronicling the efforts of, of the guys making the chain mail and everything else. It's, it's crazy. I've never seen anything like this. And he said, would you be interested in maybe, I don't know what it would be, but maybe doing something on the music. And it was something. It was left at something. <laughs> and of course, I tried to prevent my voice from cracking and all that. And <laughs> yes, I'll take it. Um, but I was hugely excited. It was, it was the, the one night I can ever remember in my life where I did not sleep a wink. I didn't close my eyes. I just sat there thinking, you know, what amazing things could come from this. But my, my, my dreams were very small at this point. I was thinking, you know, maybe I could, uh, I could do the liner notes or maybe I could do like the little, you know, a paragraph that comes with the, with the DVD or, or what have you. Um, but I was just, beyond thrilled to have been asked to be involved in any small manner. So I was, yeah, yeah, let's do this. That's great. Um, it was a very weird, uh, time of course, because that was 2001 and, and everything travel became more dangerous. And, you know, September 11th had everybody very, very nervous. Um, so we, the project kind of slowed down for a little bit, you know, Howard had to finish the score and had to get everything done. I didn't hear anything. And I was, I had hoped to like sort of check with him as he was finishing up his work on it and all that sort of thing, but everything kind of cooled down. It was, a, it was a, a little bit of a scary time in the world. And about Halloween of that year, I got a package in the mail from, uh, Abbey road and it said, you know, for your ears only, tell me what you think of this. And it was the score to fellowship. Oh, geez. Wow. Yeah. Which was crazy. Oh, well, and it was just the score. It was just, it was just the cues Q by Q. Uh, it was, I think a, a, a very rough version of the album presentation. The I first see. Album. Okay. Got it. Got it. So I just put this thing on nonstop and uh, sent Howard a note and said, you know, this is amazing. Can, can we talk? Can we do something? What do you want to do? And he said, uh, why don't you come out here? Come to, come to my uh, studio. Uh, so I think it was a few months later, a few weeks later, whatever it was, I booked myself, you know, one of the first trips I'd probably taken by myself at this point 
and uh, got out there and spent a couple of days in the studio and you know they had all the all the written scores ready for me and everything just for our listeners about what age were you at that time because this sounds like a mind-blowing experience <laughs> oh absolutely i mean i was i was in my 20s still uh, that's but yeah yeah, I mean, you know, as I say, I'm a, I'm a musician, but um, I, I've, I've told this story before. The, the reason I became a musician, musician is, is due to film music, as I'm sure a lot of people around my age, that was the case. When I was a little kid, I asked my dad to go out and buy me the LP of the story of The Empire Strikes Back. Right. And he accidentally brought home the score, um, which was probably some of the first orchestral music I ever heard. Certainly the first orchestral music I ever owned as a, as a recording. And I became obsessed with it. And, you know, dad very kindly said, oh, I got you the wrong thing. I can take that back. And I, you know, don't you dare. I want this. This is my thing. That's fantastic. And I, I wore that thing flat. You know, every groove in that record was gone by the time I was done with it. Um, so these were my these were my rock stars as a kid. You know, I had the, the pictures of John Williams and Howard Shore and Thomas Newman and things like that hanging up around my, you know, <laughs> on my dorm room. And you know, everyone else had their their cool uh you know, I guess we we're going through the grunge period at that time or something. Right. Like pictures of John Williams hanging up. Well, and so, so now uh, you're now you're about to make the trip to Howard Shore Studio. Right. And this must have been a mind blowing experience for you. Oh, I was I was so nervous. I actually drove my car into the wrong state. <laughs> I pulled over. So Howard's studio, without giving away his, his personal information, is in New York. He's he's spoken of that many times. And I, I, this is before GPS and all those wonderful of things course. came along. So I was like going to go and walk off of <laughs> terrible printed out map quest things. And I got so lost. I pulled over to a gas station and they're like, son, do you realize you're not even in New York anymore? This is Connecticut. <laughs> so, yeah, so I was nervous. I was very nervous. And now for a brief intermission. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We return now to the soundtrack show. So when you got there, you know, first of all, what did you think? What were some of your first reactions to the fellowship score? And then what was your first conversation about that score with with Howard? I mean, what were some of the key points that were initially brought up? Well, um, I mean, my first reaction was, A, I, I loved it. But B, it was, I, well, I think I had the reaction that a lot of people had, that it was very different from what ex one expected for a a blockbuster fantasy score. Hmm. It was it was a little bit less in that um, post-romantic voice that we were expecting. And it was very popular. You know, we have to remember this was happening, really being created in the in the aesthetics of the late 90s. Mm -hmm. um, so we were not all that far from all the big 80s blockbuster scores and Jerry Goldsmith and James Horner and John Williams and these people. They were writing in these very florid, um, late or post-romantic uh, styles and gestures and Howard's sound was so much more <clears throat> um kind of mid-century european very contained blocks of sound very unusual uh harmonic progressions that didn't really follow the these type of uh relationships that we were used to hearing with this sort of thing you know mm -hmm. um 
And it took a while for me to wrap my head around it. I knew I loved it. I knew that I found it incredibly moving. But as the guy that had great hopes of having something to say about it, I sort of lost all of my reference points. You know, as in, when you try to write about these things, you certainly want to sort of not make comparisons necessarily, but but describe things in relatable, familiar terms. And this was such a different type of thing. You know, it didn't sound like a Holst and Vaughn Williams. It sounded more like Sibelius and, mm. and you know, people, like I say, that, that Scandinavian sound and some things, things like that. <clears throat> um, well, that's, that's interesting. I think, Sorry, I think that was some of my first conversations, too, was just trying to get a handle on, like, what is – you know, what's the concept here? What, what was the approach that, that you, you know, what, what are your governing principles? I guess that was often my, my question for composers on it, on these sorts of interviews, but like, this was particularly germane here. I wanted to understand how he envisioned uh, the body of the orchestra. And what was his response? Um, he spoke a lot about how his concept of orchestration was very much based on range, meaning he wasn't thinking a woodwind family, he wasn't thinking a string family, he wasn't thinking a brass family. He was thinking highs, mids, and lows, and how did those interact together, <coughs> which gave him a much more um, contained and cohesive sound, as I say. And that was how he envisioned the colors of this score, that it wasn't, in a way, it's not really a, a, a technicolor score. It's almost a... These are bizarre comparisons, but it's almost a sepia tone score. No, it has I, I get it. Of, I totally get it. It's it's yeah, muted. Yeah, you know what I mean? It's yeah. it's muted in a lot of ways and not just with color, you know, not just with timbre, but with with tempo. You know, his his yes. uh, his 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 phrases are very long, which is hard and very rare in film. And you have to have a director that allows you to express them over time. Mm. But it's also, you know, there's there's you know, there's a lot of half notes and and quarter and whole notes in these melodies, you know. Uh, yeah. You know, very different than certainly from from how things have gone, and you know, since the Lord of the Rings. But anyway, yeah, that's that's fascinating. Did did one one follow up question about this first interview with uh, Howard Shore? How familiar with you were you with Lord of the Rings at the time? Because I had read The Hobbit. Confession time here. I had read The Hobbit mm -hmm. when uh, when the Lord of the Rings movies came out, but I had not finished Fellowship of the Ring when Fellowship of the Ring came out. So I personally. Uh, wasn't as familiar with Fellowship when I saw the movie for the first time and heard the score for the first time. Where were you in all of this uh, in terms I, of the source material? I'd read it as a kid, um, but I used that summer between the initial call and the time we actually began work uh, to re-familiarize with myself with the with the book. And I read it again. And also just to... I didn't want to become too wedded to the idea of it being exactly like the book because I knew some things would have to be changed. I didn't have any hints uh, beyond what anybody else had at that point. But I knew it, it was an adaptation. And I didn't want to have the idea of it has to be exactly like this or I'll be disappointed. So I got some sort of um, dramatization cassette tapes, I think, that I drove around with my car all summer. And I think they were pretty awful. And I think the main takeaway was that they said half of the names wrong. And I was questioning whether or not I had any of these things right. Um, and it was crazy to me because even in these very early preliminary interviews or just discussions with Howard, I noticed nobody was talking about sets and actors. They would talk about this happens in Moria, this happens in Rivendell. Mm. It, it was all, you know, they immersed themselves in the story incredibly. They, they truly bought into this mythology as, as I suppose one really needs to do. Um, but it was important to me to sort of do it the same way. I didn't want to talk about, you know, when, when Elijah did blah, blah, blah. It's, you know, when you're providing the music for Frodo and, 
you know, you have to you have to be in that mindset. And I think they very much were. So, yeah, that was kind of my my quick, dirty refresher on everything. What was your take on Howard Shore's familiarity with the source material? Because I've seen him say in interviews on camera that he had the book open in front of him the entire time he was writing. Do you think that that greatly affected the score? And if so, how? I think hugely. And I, I think, I, if I remember correctly, that very first... So when I, when I first got to his office to work, he wasn't there yet. His, his staff was in and they let me in and set me down to the room they prepared for me and had all the scores laying and everything. And after about a half an hour, Howard walked into the room. It's like waiting for a doctor's appointment, you know. But he had that book under his arm. I think the very first time I saw wow. him, he was holding the Lord of the Rings. Wow. And he's got little post-it notes sticking out of it and dog-eared corners and all that sort of thing. And I think in his mind, the, the music he wrote was as much for the film as it was for the book. And I know as yes. that, that sounds like a, a composer, you know, being derelict in their filmic duties, but it's, it's not that sort of thing. He, he wrote something that was, you know, to the frame synced to the film. But uh, those long phrases you mentioned, that came out of his love for the book. That's why there's so many chapter titles. By the, by the end of Return of the King, he was writing compositions that would be thousands of bars long and 20, 30 minutes because in his mind, it was one composition to cover the entire chapter. And, you know, it's, it's a lengthy book. So it, it wasn't like a scene by scene thing. He was thinking in a very literary, uh, a very literary way. It's funny that you say that because I, I, I feel that that to me is the anchor. Uh, when I think of Howard Shore's score, I think of it being so different than Williams or Horner or a lot of those because it is written for the source material. It is, it's sort of a musical adaptation of the book that then is then, you know, synchronized to film. You can hear the love, not just from Howard Shore, but you can see it in, you know, uh, in all of the art design. You can see it in the direction. You can see it in, in the actor's performances, this sort of uh, reverence for the source material. I agree that it, it does feel almost, uh, almost written for the book as much as for the film. Um, one of the questions that I had for you as a follow-up about that is that he mentioned, it mentions a lot that he wrote it over the course of four years, not just Fellowship, but the entire uh, trilogy of Lord of the Rings. Now, if you compare that to, say, John Williams writing Empire Strikes Back in six weeks or some composers like Giacchino has said that he's had to write a score in four weeks, mm-hmm. how much of that four years do you think or do you know was actually spent composing versus just it, this took place within four years. Do you know what I mean? How many how many weeks did he have to write the actual score? Well, that's a good question. I, I think on the first film, he had to step away from it a little bit. Uh, he had a couple of other projects that year. Uh, he was doing a, a Fincher, a David Fincher film at the same time. In fact, that's what they were working on when I the very first visit I made out there. Um, but I think from there on, he sort of cleared the plate. And um, it's hard to say because... That same concept of of scoring the book as much as scoring the film, was he always writing to picture? No. Was he always writing to Tolkien? Yes, he always was. You know, he would be there in the middle of summer and have maybe seen a couple of sketches of Gollum or Treebeard or some of these effects that take uh, took quite a while to accomplish. But he was already working on their themes. He was already working on... Um, you know, the March of the Ents. You can write that based on a concept and then figure out how it gets into the film. So he wasn't working in the same way, you know, that uh, you know Williams or Giacchino are, are working, where they're getting, 
these edits and starting to work around them, he was working in a, a much more conceptual way because of that literary approach. So given that, yes, he, he truly was working consistently those four years, save for the little departure of the, I guess it would have been early 2002, uh, to handle a couple of other pictures at the same time. That's yeah, that, that, so it seems like he had a, uh, a large amount of time to basically create a, a series of light motifs or themes. Um, it, it seems too, that that really, kind of translates itself into writing for the different cultures of of uh, of the Lord of the Rings as well. You know, I mean, it's it's almost like an anthropological approach to to yes. writing a film score, which is just fascinating. Um, I love how in your book, so I want to get to your book, uh, The Music of the Lord of the Rings films, and, and how you basically uh, ca- captured your experience with Howard Shore in these pages. You don't shy away from the music. I mean, you really get in there and you talk about musical detail. Uh, some of the details you talk about, we touch on a lot in this show. You know, we, we look at uh, some things that are, that are sort of clever, clever poetic conceits, some things that are kind of hidden Easter eggs. You talk a lot about that. How much of this uh, do you know, you know, or to have certain examples, was something that Howard Shore went for with great intention at the beginning versus, say, something that kind of evolved or he kind of discovered that he did by pure instinct. You know, for example, you, you mentioned sort of the the there and back again selection of notes, you know, the whole step, uh, da, 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 that sort of thing, mm-hmm. or, you know, some other Easter eggs, you know, the nine notes in the fellowship, uh, you know, theme. How much of that was intentional and sort of poetic approach from Howard Shore versus something that just evolved over time that you picked up on and pointed out? I think most of the things, uh, you know, the the conceits with the principal motifs were were very, very purposeful. He, he talks a lot about composing instinctually, but, you know, things like getting glimpses of the Gondor theme in fellowship, even if they're just little hints that come to be developed later. Those mm-hmm. are very intentional uh, music drama choices. Um, some of these little other Easter egg things, uh, Easter egg things, these are probably that's where the instinct takes over more. Um, sometimes I would point these things out to him. Sometimes he would point these things out to me, but we would both sort of sit and chuckle over it and go, Hey, look, that does work. That's true. Yeah, we got that. Well, we should mention that. That's kind of cool. Do you have a specific um, example of a, of a time when you pointed something out to him and said, look what you did that comes um, to mind? I think, well, for example, I've, believe uh, I might have been it's hard to tell sometimes he's so polite that's that's that Canadian thing <laughs> kicking into where I can say like hey did you realize this and I go oh look at that you know like a <laughs> like a loving parent or oh or right, right right um but I think I I pointed out to him that if you take the notes of the um ring theme the, the principal history of the ring theme and play them simultaneous uh, they become the chord that's associated with the ring wraiths. I right. think that might have been the one that showed him that. I loved um, that. I love that that little yeah. detail. Yeah, that's great. Um, but he would notice little trivia things too, or or have someone point them out to him. Um, he he, I was with him one day, and he played me. Come here, listen to this. Played me a bit of uh, of a Sibelius symphony, which just happened to quote a phrase from the fellowship theme. And this was like, you know, he was on return to the king at this point. So he'd already been working on the project for several years. He said, Hey, did you ever notice this was in here? It's the same thing. Um, you know, just, he would, he would find these little connections that he would find either humorous or meaningful or, or both. Um, so sometimes he'd share those with me as well. The soundtrack show will continue in a moment. 
we return now to the soundtrack show. Do you have any favorite musical themes that either are or just contained in one movie or maybe have developed over the course of the three films? Do you have any favorites that immediately come to mind when you think about his score for the Lord of the Rings films? It's funny, my answer always changes on that. And I think it's because I've lived with these scores for so long. When I started working on them, um, yeah, I, I loved the uh, the Shire theme so much because I felt so much like <clears throat> the Hobbit characters. You know, I was I was leaving home for the first time and going on these adventures that I wasn't quite sure where I was going. You know, my trips to London for the recording sessions, I think were literally the first time I'd been out of the country by myself. In fact, it might have been the second time I was ever even out of the country. Um, and I felt like these characters that were they're sort of thrust out into the larger world, not really <laughs> fully prepared for what they were doing, but willing to do it nonetheless. As I've gotten older, things like the... Um, you know, the, the Gondor theme speaks to me quite a bit for the way it's it's revealed so cleverly that it's it's in the first score, uh, but you wouldn't even know it as a principal motif until you get further into the series. Um, although it was supposed to be in Fellowship quite a bit more, but it they, you know, these things evolve as they develop. Um, and I, I now as, as someone that's, uh, you know, getting into the <laughs> the age where I'm supposed to be a little bit more assertive in this world, I guess I find themes like that uh, speaking to me a bit more. So it, it's it's become such a personal thing, you know, that it was a project that I was on it's su for such a long period of my life and such a important period of a person's life. You know, you're a guy in your 20s and early 30s and there's quite a bit happening in your life at that point. So I can listen to specific passages and, you know, remember I met my wife that day or things like that. So. Wow. So you started out as Frodo and you realized this now, now you're, you're carrying the responsibility of Aragorn now. <laughs> <That's> your... <laughs> yeah. And my beard's going great too. So I feel the pain. Uh, that's great. Well, I want to ask you about your time at Abbey Road because what a fascinating and unusual treat to be able to witness, you know, the creation happening right there. Um, when you were there, was Peter Jackson there or was he dialed in from New Zealand? Uh, he was in London, but he did not attend the Abbey Road sessions at that time. He was at the uh, the sessions at the town hall, <clears throat> but I think he was supervising, I think, some effects that those couple of days. So he wasn't in the, in the studio at Abbey Road. Well, I guess my question is, you know, I, I'm always very curious, and this is something I talk about a lot on the show, uh, about the relationship between directors and composers, because I, you know, we, we see time and time again, that it's really the director that has to give the composer not only uh, ample time and budget to create the score, but actual feet and frames to express it. And Peter Jackson has famously said, you know, well, I'm not a musician. I don't know a lot about music, but seemed very particular about what he wanted with Howard Shore. Can you describe, in your opinion, what that relationship was like if you got to see it in action at Abbey Road? Uh, well, I got to see it a lot in action um, with the orchestral sessions. Uh, the great example, I think, is uh, so there's the scene in Return of the King where the, the sword is revealed to Aragorn and it's been reforged and now he can sort of claim his heritage. Um, and Howard had this wonderful composition to go with the reveal of the sword. It's unsheathed and he, he realizes that, you know, it, it once again is whole. Um, and the orchestra did its first pass at the composition. He came up to the booth to listen to it with Peter Jackson. Most of the time at the recording sessions, I was actually on the floor with the orchestra. But for some reason that day, I'd gone up to the booth and I was sitting next to Peter Jackson as the sessions were happening. So Howard came up and um, as they reviewed the material, 
you know, Peter Jackson didn't have musical comments per se, because he's, he's not a musician as he himself acknowledges. He wouldn't say, you know, I think that D major needs to add the flat six or, you know, whatever. Um, but he did say, um, I want to hear, can, can we change the balance? So I hear more of the orchestra and less of the, there's a big suspended cymbal role when the, when the knife or the sword comes out. And I, he wanted to hear more of the orchestra and less of the cymbal because in his words, the emotion is in the orchestra, not, not in the cymbal. And Howard completely agreed, went back to the floor, did another take, and everybody was entirely happy with it. So it's not a musical comment in terms of theory or composition, but it was it was a musical comment in terms of orchestral balance. And it was something that, that worked. It was a good dramatic choice. So it was that sort of relationship. And those would be the types of comments that I would hear uh, Pete making for Howard is, is you know, how, how can we best tell this story type of comments? It's funny because when I think about that, the sound editor and mixer in me immediately kicks in and says, yeah, and you're going to have this giant shing when the thing <laughs> comes out that's going to be competing in that sort of uh, high mid range of the symbols. So, so, you know, take it down, take it down. <laughs> that's true also. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, so uh, I wanted to ask you too about going from the theatrical releases to the special edition releases while also having to prepare, say, for example, the two towers. Like I think about what that schedule was like between 2001 and 2003. And I just, it makes my head spin that not only were they preparing the next movie, but Howard Shore had to go back in, or I'm assuming, you know, his music editor team. And, you know, I I, I know Mark Wilshire, who, uh, you know, was, I believe, the producer on the two towers special edition and then Return of the King. And we had a conversation right. about this, but I'm curious to get your take witnessing it on on the floor. You know, can you des- describe to our listeners just how chaotic or not chaotic those processes were uh, in terms of having so much to get done in just three short years? Well, I think they were just relentless. Um, the special edition material, some of it was actually recorded at the main sessions, but I think that sometimes was because... Uh, they decided late into the game that certain scenes would be held back for uh, for the special editions. Um, so sometimes those would actually be recorded in the fall and not heard until, wow, uh, I guess it would have been over a year later. Um, but then, of course, there were additional sessions in the spring to get uh, other compositions recorded, which sometimes were very uh, significant uh, compositions. They, they were not always lightweight pieces. Um, but yeah, it was just a matter of, you know, I can remember them getting back from um, from Fellowship. And Fellowship, you know, of course, that was the big gamble one. And, and it ended up being a huge hit. And there were, you know, all these Oscar things going on and everything else. And Howard would always say, you know, we, we took this time to celebrate the Oscars and everyone was happy about it. And all that emphasis went into that. And then we got through all those parties and realized, oh, wow, we have to get back to work like right now. Right. Um, yeah, because the, those those sessions were coming up and then they needed to get into two towers as quickly as they could. Wow. So that's part of the reason, too, that he canceled all those other projects after that, because it was just a matter of once you got into Middle Earth, you were there all the time. And it was it was a just a gargantuan amount of work. Howard was writing through all of the sessions, despite the fact that he'd been working the entire year previous. Um, you know, he'd end every night and go back to the hotel. He mostly kept New York hours. So he was up until the wee hours of the night mm. and just wrote every night, sent it off to copyists back in New York and tried to get everything on the floor for the next day. And it just, just didn't let up. It was, it was, uh, 
as the saying goes, not a sprint, but a marathon for sure. Um, I wanted to ask you too about um, what insight you have to Howard Shore's musical influences when approaching the score. Obviously, he had a huge literary influence. You mentioned Sibelius. You mentioned, uh, well, you talked about Vaughn Williams, I think, in terms of John Williams. But do you kind of have an idea of, of the palette um, that that Howard Shore was was going for um, specifically with uh, with Lord of the Rings? Um, I, I, I've often made the comparison. He he liked to compare this to you know an operatic sound, and I think he really had the sound of the Met in mind in New York. Um, and while he took a very German opera approach to the structure, you know, in terms of the the light motifs and the thematic development, and all that, um, I think in terms of that orchestral palette and um, emotional pitch, I think it was much more Italian opera. I think mm. he was really thinking. He was thinking of the the pit orchestra sound in Verdi and Puccini and composers like that that had that, you know, heart on the sleeve, emotional quality and and richness of the of the ensemble. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think he tried to emulate them in in terms of homage or anything like that. They really oh, the only kind of classical world homage is the, the bit of Wagner at the end of uh, Return of the King. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that was the 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 warmth and and um, depth of the sound that he was trying to to echo. It's interesting too because that that uh, sort of Celtic sound you mentioned being part of the 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 late 90s when this when this score was kind of in its gestation that sound was so huge in the late 90s especially after James Horner's Titanic. Were there any discussions at, at all around, you know, sort of the timbre of say Hobbiton or or you know, what sounds were, were really in or hip at the time? Or was it just like, no, go make your own thing, make it be whatever it needs to be. Did he ever get any kind of, you know, feedback or instruction that way in terms of, no, I don't like that, or, or make it more like, you know, something that's more relevant that people will, will be into nowadays, like that Titanic sound, for example? I don't know. I certainly, I was not around for any, any discussions that were, you know, geared toward a sort of uh, commercial appeal or anything like that. I, I think, Anything that I was witness to was was just what's in service to Tolkien because the the filmmakers are such fans of that as well. They absolutely had notes on on you know melodic ideas and things like that. And I think a lot of what they did, you know, it was it was very removed from the studio because they were so far away. You had Howard composing in New York, and you had filmmakers working in New Zealand, and there wasn't much. Um, you know, it was hard for uh, for the executives to get down there, so I think they avoided a lot of notes that way. Mm. Um, so I don't think that there were any discussions that way, but certainly I, I, I agree. I think it was sort of part of that zeitgeist of, of, of that, you know, the Celtic sound that was, it probably culminated in Titanic, but it had been floating around for a bit before that, you know, yeah. the, uh, things like, uh, Braveheart know, and, uh, yeah, well, Braveheart, yeah. Rob Roy, Rob Roy um, yeah. even the Enya stuff, uh, far and away was in there. Oh yeah. Yeah. So the nineties. Yeah. 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 So I think it was just, there was you know, somehow that was a very in sound right then. Yeah. So I wanted to go back to your story about hearing the, the soundtrack for the first time. You talked to Howard Shore, but then clearly you hadn't seen the movie yet. And this is what I think is so interesting about the story you've been telling is you're seeing the music, you know, largely out of film context, certainly within the context of Lord of the Rings. But what was your reaction the first time you saw Fellowship of the Ring, what was your reaction to the score? Did it change your opinion? What did you think of the final presentation? I think it made much more sense of these long phrases because that was, as, as you say, such an unusual thing. And 
I had a hard time picturing how that was going to work. And I, I was kind of coming into it thinking this thing is going to be sliced to ribbons in the mix because how do you make such long musical ideas, you know, fit into a contemporary story? Well, not a contemporary story, but contemporary storytelling. Um, and I was I was very pleasantly surprised to find that they'd found a cinematic language that allowed Howard to use this sort of musical language. You know, he had such long musical ideas and it wasn't like the editing was particularly slow or, you know, they weren't trying to do a David Lean thing or anything. It mm -hmm. was, it was a contemporary filmmaking. Um, but they let him stretch across such, such, um, you know, so much real estate, filmically speaking. Right. He was able to really just go from here to here and, and, he he writes in such an organic way. It's it's very cool because he's he does uh, punch things the way a, a film composer will, but he does it in such a subtle way. You know, it's not yeah. with a big stabbing trumpet chord. It's just with a a shift in in timbre or color or, or range or or you know something very subtle. And so when you listen to the music, it it doesn't. Um, it's not a very hard cornered style of music. You know, it's very. Yeah. Uh, a very horizontal style. It stretches. Mm. Um, but it, it makes so much sense cinematically when you see it synced up, but you take it away from the film and you suddenly, you know, you feel that that wonderful languid sense to it again. So I was very pleasantly surprised, surprised to find that they they coincided beautifully. I mean, each complemented the other in, in a very wonderful way. It's almost a paradox because, you know, I, I remember having this moment in the theater, seeing the two towers for the first time. And there's a moment when. Uh, Aragorn and Eowyn has joined and, and Gimli, they're, they're all on horses and Gimli makes some, I can't even remember at the time, I've been studying fellowship so hard I, I need to look at this scene again, but Gimli has some comedic moment with Eowyn and they're riding horses and and I remember thinking, you know, if John Williams had done this scene, he would have punched that, he would have punched that, he would have punched that. <laughs> Howard Shore didn't really touch any of it. He just kind of stayed in Rohan, you know. And right. yet it still worked and it still fit. And he might have grabbed a couple of things here and there. He certainly didn't have any, you know, phrases getting, uh, he didn't have any musical ideas or phrases being interrupted, nor did he, you know, put one on top of a moment. He let that comedic moment breathe. And it's just such a great insight that you provided that somehow he was able to dance around these moments yet still continue a longer uh, musical arc you know, that just kind of spreads across multiple shots, multiple cuts over timelines. It's it's really fantastic. Um, do you have any recollection of what maybe Howard Shore's favorite moments were musically? Say, I, you know, from any of the films, uh, did he have a moment or a particular film score cue that he was very proud of that you got to witness? Hmm, that's an excellent question. Uh, I know he was quite fond of... of the way the lighting of the beacons came across. Mm. Um, I think he was very fond of uh, the uh, the march of the Ents and the uh, <clears throat> the release of the of the waterfall there in Isengard. Um, I think he he poured his heart and soul into the death of Boromir. I think that was a very important scene to him. Um, but there's a lot of these little things too. I think he had a, a, a huge fondness for the innocence of of the. Uh, of the hobbits and their love of nature. I think those early Shire scenes meant a lot to him. Um, as he's often fond of saying, he sort of lives out in the middle of a forest too, and is mm -hmm. surrounded by trees and ponds and things like that. 
And I think he he sees a bit of that world and that bit of love for all things good and green uh, in his own existence and, and relates that quite a bit. Um, so I think he likes the big epic gargantuan scenes, but I think the ones that are maybe closest to him are those these little slight moments, just, you know, little delicate gestures and, you know, the small town life of the Shire and things like that. I think that really meant a lot to him. You mentioned the the March of the Ants on Isengard, and it makes me think of that nature theme, you know, uh, that starts in uh, fellowship with the the boy soprano. And then mm-hmm. you, you kind of hear it really develop in the March of the Ants there. Because these are three separate films, I guess my question is, did he know that he was going to be able to develop these over three films in a particular way? Or was it just kind of something that uh, fell into place naturally once the, the second film, then the third film happened? For example, John Williams or, or someone like that will spend an entire movie developing a theme and then not give it to us, you know, in it as a whole theme until a very key emotional moment in the movie. Whereas Howard Shore did this over three films in four years. Did he have that all mapped out to your knowledge? Or was that something that just kind of organically developed as the movies were in production? I think most of those he had pretty well mapped out. Um, wow. wow. Yeah, it, which yeah. was a, a huge event. But that's when it, it's convenient to be so familiar with the with the stories already. Yeah. Um, the, the example I like to give is that that Gondor theme that, you know, you hear it during Boromir's speech at the Council of Elrond and, and really not not too much anywhere else in fellowship at this point. And then it begins developing, 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 and it's eventually, you know, the sort of a, a central, if not the central theme of Return of the King. Um, but originally, you know, a lot of people thought, well, he just took that little line and decided to develop it. Um, but it's not the case. If you look at the very early versions of Fellowship, <clears throat> that theme uh, was used quite a bit more often. It was used for the for the prologue sequence. It was used mm. for uh, the Fellowship passing between the Argonauts statues. Um, it was a, a major theme and they decided, you know what, let's, let's hold this back. This will serve the story better. If you just get this one little hint and then it becomes something uh, much more profound as the story moves ahead. So you got uh, to see a lot of different versions of the film in production and different music edits. Most of what I saw, well, actually, I guess I did see a fair number of music edits, but a lot of that, um, I got into after the fact, usually by the time I got involved, they had, uh, Structure wasn't locked, but scenes were locked. So, so the order of things would shift around, but usually the scenes themselves were pretty well, pretty well shaped. Hmm. Um, as I went back to research uh, some of the rarities, some of the un, unused music, I, uh, see, I started I to see. discover yeah, that there was a lot of <laughs> a lot of changes made and, right. and some just completely alternate uh, thematic ideas and compositions and things like that. That shape too of Gondor's theme, at least the way it resolves, kind of you know, it kind of winds its way up to an octave, you know, up to the top, and da, 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 that, that sort of thing at the end. You hear that right. a little bit with Aragorn, too. I believe that's yes. in Fellowship. You hear that when Aragorn does something heroic. Um, it does It does kind of just hint at itself. I mean, that's. it's so impressive to be able to do something over three films instead of one and kind of know about it ahead of time. Um, yeah. and, and so what you're saying is that this was a carefully measured, carefully measured uh, approach. That was that also included some trial and error. Um, are there any other examples besides Gondor's theme that you can think of? Maybe something to do with the Fellowship theme. Um, if I recall, the Fellowship theme, you don't really get it fully until uh, the Council of Elrond, and then it kind of breaks a little bit, breaks down a little bit. 
Right, that's true. Within within the context of just that first score, the fellowship theme does um, sort of piece itself together until you get to the council. And then after that, uh, starting with the death of Boromir, it's really not heard in a in a you know a, a clean full statement again for for quite some time until Maybe Return until of the, the King, I believe. Yeah, yeah, right. The Charger, the the Black Gate, and all that. You start to get these big, gigantic statements of it once again. But it's it's pretty well fractured. Well, this is great. You know, I'm I'm just covering fellowship on the show, but it's almost impossible to do. You know, I, I it's you know as I've been writing the show, I'm like, well, I, I kind of have to mention this two towers thing, and I kind of have to mention this Return of the King thing <laughs> because it is, it is kind of like one film, um, and it sounds like uh, Howard Shore had that approach because he was he had the books with him. This is great. I mean, I really appreciate you talking to me about all this stuff, and I want to I want to just end by talking about your book especially for those of you who are listening that are that are hardcore fans of Lord of the Rings and film scores. The music of the Lord of the Rings films by Doug Adams, a comprehensive account of Howard Shore's scores. I have it sitting right here. It is a fascinating read, yet it it flies by. I mean, this is a substantial work that you did. It took is years of your life. But like, I mean, you can you can just fly through this thing because it is a page turner, especially if you're, you know, into music analysis and music theory. There's a lot of musical passages in here. Do you have any favorite moments in in uh, in writing this book and seeing it published? Were there any any moments that you were particularly proud of that you want to highlight to to listeners that, you know, that are going to pick up this book? <laughs> the part where I finished it. <laughs> <laughs> of course. It was, it was an incredibly long project. It was very difficult to get moving because it was, um, you know, not, not with uh, the filmmakers or, or the, the music uh, department or thing like that, but just in terms of getting people to understand in the book world what on earth I was talking about. Mm. Um, and I guess that was, you know, it was my own fault. I wrote this book because this is the, ki- the type of thing I couldn't find when I was in university, when I was in music school. I would want to go find, you know, pieces that that really got under the skin of of film music and and talked about it in a respectful musical manner rather than just, you know, a, a side note or an asterisk. Or I would find lots of record reviews from you know things like fanfare and things like that. But there was never never any real deep discussion of of musical content and and you know what it was theoretically, what it was narratively. Um, so I tried to say, well, okay, fine, then I'll do it. But then, as I say, when you have nothing to compare these things to, it, it greatly confuses people. Um, so it went through, you know, iteration after iteration after iteration. We even had, I I don't know how, if people are aware of this or not, but we had an entire other publisher that was ready to put it out and we had the entire book laid out and everything ready to go and, uh, pulled the plug about a year before we finally got it out. <coughs> and uh, yeah, I just had to do the entire thing over from scratch. Um, some of which even involved rewriting things just because I knew, you know, I have an extra year, I'm going to do this even better. Um, I just tried to, you know, be as, as as relentless as I had seen the music team be during the the filmmaking. So to finally reach the finish line, I think, <laughs> if I remember correctly, there was a, a thing at the very end of the entire project. I had something where, like, they they delivered proofs to me through FedEx at, like, 8 in the morning, and I had to have them sent back to the publisher by noon or something uh, with all my notes. So I had to do this, you know, incredibly fast review with the coffee brewing in the background, trying to get it all done. 
and then raced over to FedEx and someone hit my car on the way over. So I had to deal with that. And it was, oh, you know, it was, yeah, it was like a, a parody of a bad drama. Just anything that could that impede progress seemed to happen. Um, but that day when just everything was out the door and, you know, a few weeks later, a few months later, there was a, another doorbell and there was a, a big finished book sitting on my porch. And I just couldn't believe that I was actually holding it in my hands. Well, that's great. Well, congratulations. I mean, this really is an incredible, well, what an incredible way to kick off your career too. I mean, the music of the <laughs> Lord of the Rings films by Doug Adams. Doug, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people find you? Obviously, you can find this book on Amazon or anywhere they sell sell books like this, just a Google search. But where, where can they find you and anything you want to uh, let the listeners be aware of in terms of your work? I tend to hang around on Twitter quite a bit, so they can find me at Doug Adams Music there. And, uh, you know, I try to keep that as active as I can with upcoming projects and things like that. Fantastic. Well, thanks, Doug. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. <laughs>